Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, episode 147, A Punch in the Nose. First, as always, thank you to Patreon supporters, all of you, but especially to Albert Cohen for increasing his support, and a an enormous thank you to Bonnie Fisher and Boris Dramov for their generous donation, and I'm looking forward to grabbing dinner with them in Sofia next week. Um, as always, thank you to all of you. Also, a quick update on the book. Good news and bad news. Good news, uh, I found a few historians who are reading through and giving me some feedback, and one of them suggested a few, well, found really, a few other sources that I hadn't been able to find. So it's going to take me a little bit longer to completely finish, just I want to read through these few books and make sure that there's nothing I, I really missed. Uh, but still, it's just about done. It's just being kind of revised and getting some feedback from a few folks. But thank you to all of you who've checked in on that. And, oh, one last thing to note, today is the eighth anniversary from the publishing of the first episode of this podcast, which is really exciting. I I always thought this podcast would take about 10 years. Now, I think maybe 10 or 11, roughly. So I wasn't too far off with my initial estimate all those eight years ago. But I guess just finish up with thank you all so much uh, for all the support, for, for listening, for commenting, for supporting everything you've all done. This is just the coolest project I've ever had the privilege to uh, kind of be a part of, and you all make it happen. So thank you for the uh, the eight years and for the years to come. And now let's get into it. Now, last time we saw Prince Alexander's government formed in the wake of his coup dissolve into what can charitably be called a, a hot mess. Uh, crisis after crisis slowly burned every single bridge between the prince, the Russians, the conservatives, and the liberals. The railroad issue kept coming up. There was the issue of the mounted dragoon soldiers under Russian command, which had basically replaced the police force. There was the issue of the pro-Russian church official that the exarch ordered into exile, and just on and on and on it went. Some official once remarked that Alexander Battenberg probably would have made a fine prince of an established country, but was wholly unsuited to governing a chaotic and newly established one. That seemed to be playing out as the prince had by this point spent his four years on the throne systematically alienating just about everyone who needed to be on his side. So we left off specifically in March of 1883, with the two Russian generals forcing the last remaining conservatives in the cabinet to resign, meaning these two men, these two Russian generals, now effectively ran Bulgaria practically unopposed. An Austrian diplomat cabled Vienna that, quote, the two generals pay no attention to the limited susceptibilities of Bulgaria's national pride, nor are they adapting themselves to the form of government already established in the country. The regime which they seem to desire to set up in this country is a military dictatorship of two, end quote. Now, Battenberg's personal chaplain wrote that, quote, the behavior of the two generals towards the Bulgarians was both imperious and offensive, they might be heard saying on all occasions that the Bulgarians were all blockheads who ought to be treated with a knout, end quote. Now, 
I had to Google what a knout was. Apparently it was a whip used for punishment in Imperial Russia, uh, a punishment that was harsh enough that sometimes it killed people. So those those two quotes really give you some sense of how these these uh, these two generals are kind of treating Bulgaria and, and how they see their position there. Uh, we've heard quite a few sources talk about how Bulgaria at times gets treated almost as if it's a province or a colony of Russia instead of a fellow country. Although, again, it's not a fully independent country. It, it, it's hard to remember that at this point. You know, Bulgaria seems basically to function completely independently, but it is still technically part of the Ottoman Empire. Now, Another quote to give us a little bit of interesting flavor and context. The professor and diplomat Stefan Panoretov wrote to the conservative politician Stoilov that, quote, You must make the prince understand that he is the prince of Bulgaria and not the governor of a Russian province. We must make the Russians understand that while we are bound to them by ties of religion, race, and everlasting gratitude for our emancipation— We mean to govern our own affairs to the best of our ability. The sooner the prince gets rid of them, Sobolev, Kalbars, and their associates, the better for him and for the country. We only need a Russian general for the war minister, and he who comes to fulfill that post ought plainly to understand that he comes as our servant and not as our master. End quote. So, that professor and diplomat really gets to the heart of what is happening here. And the way a lot of Bulgarians feel about Russia and sort of Russia's treatment of them by this point. Now, all three of those quotes were taken from the excellent, uh, I think a PhD or a master's dissertation by Rekun. Uh, so I've, I've been using him a lot in these few episodes. So big thanks to him. His work is excellent and invaluable here. Now, so in this new environment, The conservatives issued a demand to the prince that the Russians be ousted and that the National Assembly be brought back into session. The liberals, for their part, saw a chance to begin to finally kind of organize openly to restore the Constitution. Remember, the liberals had kind of been quiet for a little while, uh, basically because they'd been uh, repressed and the police had been raiding them and putting them under house arrest and things. But now they see their political opening. The Russian generals, for their part, now saw the conservatives as Russia's enemy and looked actually favorably to the liberals, because I guess that might as well happen. Uh, again, it's it's a bit funny how just uh, there are no permanent alliances. Everyone burns bridges. Everyone switches things constantly. The politics of this period is just such a mess. Now, the Russians did actually attempt to reach out to the liberals and allowed Tsankov to be released from house arrest. He responded by then fleeing abroad. But the liberals rebuffed them. The Russians then turned to the army, but the liberals had gotten ahead of them and secured the loyalty of key officials. So it should be clear that the liberals and conservatives are done working with the Russians. They have no faith in them at this point. They see them as uh, sort of politically toxic. So the Russians are kind of scrambling for allies in this new political moment, and they are not really finding any. So this was the situation. Basically, frustration all around. But Prince Battenberg was now ready to ask his cousin, Tsar Alexander III, to withdraw Sobolev and Kalbars and to attempt to work with the Turnable Constitution under a new coalition government, bringing in both the conservatives and the liberals. In other words, the prince was ready to admit defeat and undo everything he had done with the coup a year earlier. Russia, for its part, as I kind of mentioned, now found itself rebuffed by the conservatives, the liberals, and basically the army. 
Now, luckily for the prince, his cousin in St. Petersburg was about to hold his coronation, and so Battenberg had the perfect excuse to travel up and speak with him in person about the situation. Now, Prince Battenberg also used this opportunity to visit the various capitals of the Balkans, meet his fellow rulers, and, you know, establish some better ties. But when the prince finally did arrive in St. Petersburg, he found a nasty surprise. Despite his explicit orders to the contrary, the Russian generals had allowed a delegation of liberal politicians to travel as well. In other words, Prince Alexander, Prince Battenberg, he wanted to just deal with his cousin one-on-one. He, he didn't want Bulgarian political parties to get involved. You know, it's a lot easier to conduct foreign policy as a single individual rather than having kind of multiple factions and interests all lobbying a foreign power on their own. So this this is pretty understandable why the prince wanted it this way, but, well, the Russian generals never cared much about what he wanted. Now, when he arrived, the Russian foreign minister made it clear that Basically, he and therefore the Russian foreign ministry had no confidence in Battenberg. The Russians felt that the prince had not rewarded Russia enough with economic privileges to say thank you for its support during his coup. Except, of course, it was the conservatives who had blocked those moves. But, you know, why, why let reality get in the way of any of this? It seemed that the, the kind of general way that the Russian foreign ministry viewed Bulgaria is that no matter what happened, if anything went wrong, if anything happened that they didn't like, it was Battenberg's fault, just by default. Now, Battenberg felt this. As the Tsar met with the liberal delegation before him, which further angered him, now, Battenberg could really feel just how disappointed and angry the Russians were with him. And this was further kind of exasperated by the fact that the Tsar actually met with the liberal delegation before they met with Battenberg, which really angered him further. And the liberals expressed their desire to see the prince removed and replaced by the Prince of Denmark, who was an initial kind of candidate for the throne. In fact, the Tsar actually initially refused an audience with his cousin at all after he had met with the liberals. Battenberg eventually had to force his way into the Tsar's private chambers, which pissed him off a lot and created even more bad blood between the cousins. Still, when, when Alexander met personally with the Tsar, he got most of what he wanted. Still, though, relations were bad. Now, the Austrian ambassador reported Tsar Alexander III saying, quote, The situation between me and the Prince of Bulgaria is this, that either I or he has lied. Since I have never in my whole life told a lie, he must be the one who has lied. No reconciliation is therefore possible between him and me. End quote. I, I really just had to include that. That's an amazing quote. It's kind of hilarious. <laughs> the, the perspective of you could tell this guy has been raised in his entire life in a palace when he has the gall to say that he's never lied in his entire life. But um, yeah, that's just a little gem of a quote. Now, Battenberg, for his part, simply wrote that, quote, you simply have no idea what a fearful hatred I have for the Tsar and for his government, end quote. So again, the Russians basically gave Battenberg pretty much everything he asked for here, but that does not mean relations are good. They are very bad. The cousins are not getting along in any way, shape, or form. So Battenberg left St. Petersburg under the impression that the two generals would be withdrawn, about which he was correct, and that Enruth, that Finnish-Russian general who had basically made the coup happen, would be returned to Sofia in their place. However, on that second point, he was mistaken. 
It was abundantly clear in St. Petersburg that the general's mission in Bulgaria had been a failure and that the foreign ministry basically thought that Enruth would clash with other officials in Sofia and they did not want to send him. So a new diplomat named Ionin was sent instead. Now, opinions differed on whether this new official was a zealous panslav or a prudent professional. But he was put on a much shorter leash than his predecessors. Remember, his, his predecessors operating in Bulgaria basically could do whatever they want, and they very much did exactly that, causing all kinds of problems. But now the Russian foreign ministry wanted to keep them a bit more in check. So Ionin's mission was to maintain Russian prestige and to support the Russian generals operating in Bulgaria because they wouldn't be leaving right away. It'd be about a year. The new Russian policy was to reduce the power of Prince Alexander and to restore the constitution. Now, Battenberg, for his part, had also, as I kind of mentioned, finally decided that it was time to restore the constitution. The liberals were still fighting for this, and the rising power of the Russians had finally pushed the conservatives to begin negotiations for a combined government. Black quotes an Austrian agent who wrote that, quote, The real common basis for this compromise is the prodigious hatred which has developed during the Sobolev regime of the Russian yoke, which is becoming increasingly intolerable, end quote. So, <laughs> Maybe it's a bit ironic, right, that, that Russian meddling and, and Russian mismanagement has caused all kinds of problems for Bulgaria during its brief uh, kind of semi-independence. But now at least it seems that uh, Russian actions are providing a kind of unifying force, which is desperately needed. Now, the negotiations for a unified government bore fruit in August when the conservatives and the moderate wing of the liberals under Tsankov unveiled their coalition agreement. It would end the prince's special powers, close three ministries, and reinstate the constitution. However, several amendments the conservatives had been advocating, advocating for would also be included. Now, ultimately, they agreed to work together against what they saw as Russian oppression. To accomplish this, they would hold another national assembly created from fair elections. Many other liberals, though, were furious at Tsankov for this agreement, arguing he had made too many concessions and that the prospect of Russian support would have allowed the liberals to rule on their own if they had just been more patient. Now, it was ultimately agreed that cooperation with the conservatives should be limited to the goal of restoring the constitution, and once that was done, well, let's say the political gloves would be off once again. So now everyone, the Russians, the prince, the conservatives, and the liberals were in favor of restoring the constitution. The difference was that the Russians were now focused on ensuring that they still had a seat at the table and that the political parties didn't come after Sobolev and Kalbars, the two generals. This resulted in a series of angry meetings between the new Russian agent Ionin and Prince Battenberg. The prince was served an ultimatum regarding how the new constitution would function and that Sobolev and Kalbars would remain in Sofia for another year. Needless to say, he was not pleased with the prospect of becoming a Russian puppet and generally being dictated to in this way. As August wore on, it became clear that the liberals were, as Rekun correctly argues, the real kingmakers at this stage. Along with the Russians, they could overpower the prince and the conservatives. If they joined these two groups against the Russians, they could easily gain power. So, Tsankov became play, began playing both sides against each other to see which faction could get the liberals the better deal. Ultimately, though, 
anger and frustration at the Russians basically trumped everything else. Tsankov brought the prince an ultimatum for liberal cooperation. It seemed Battenberg was just getting ultimatums left and right these days. When the prince attempted to negotiate, he was very firmly told that this was not a deal uh, that he could negotiate. This was a take-it-or-leave-it kind of situation. The deal was basically that the Turnable Constitution would be restored as is, and amendments would only be considered later. Battenberg didn't really have another option. At the end of August, the prince issued an order for a new committee to be drawn up and to restore the Constitution. Now, what wasn't widely known, however, was that together, Tsankov and Battenberg had basically laid a trap. Heading into September, the Russians believed they had secured the support of the liberals and the prince. When a new National Assembly was opened in that month, it stated that it was only going to work on the budget and a railroad convention, just as the Russians had requested. However, two days into the legislative session, it suddenly declared that it wished to, for the prince to restore the constitution. It was nearly midnight, but the entire assembly adjourned so they could walk to the palace hand over the peti- and hand over the petition to restore the constitution to the prince in person, basically taking the Russians completely off guard. The constitution was restored the next day. So Belef and Kalbars resigned and returned to St. Petersburg furious. Russia had just been dealt a major blow in Bulgaria and its influence was at a real low point. The Tsar and his government, for their part, were furious and blamed the entire situation on Battenberg. The Russian foreign minister even wrote that he had never been more disgusted in his 45 years of service. The prince, for his part, now felt victorious and attempted to reach out to the Tsar personally, writing that, quote, The present situation must not and cannot continue. Despite all that has happened, despite all the insults that your agents have inflicted upon us, I stretch out my hand to you, sire. Bid your people to consider my views, to come to an agreement with me. For no matter what anyone may say, I love Russia with my whole heart. And no matter what anyone may say to contradict it, I have a feeling of deep friendship for your majesty's august person and for the whole of the imperial family. End quote. However, the Tsar saw this as complete hypocrisy, and it really just made him more angry. He and his government now wanted Battenberg gone more than ever, if such a thing is possible. But for the moment, he enjoyed the backing of both political parties and other European powers, so the Russians would have to bide their time. Meanwhile, Ionin wrote a 45-page document summarizing the problems of Russia's policy in Bulgaria up to this point, and I think it's worth quoting at length. Ionin wrote, quote, We ourselves could not determine our own goal, which we could have and need to follow in Bulgaria. In connection to this, we were entangled in the choosing of methods, as every agent of ours composed their own personal plan of action and destroyed the work of his predecessor. From the time of the Treaty of Berlin, Russia never entirely justified those expectations which the Bulgarians put upon her. The ceaseless change of opinions, people, and systems, the transition from the Turnable Constitution to a barely masked despotism, confused the minds and shook our popular credit. After the coup, the prince had neither support in the country nor a foundation beneath his feet. Against him, protesting and indignant stood all of Bulgaria, people and parties, both the cautious and the utopian, the loyalists of Russia and her enemies. 
together with this. And so as to even further compromise us, the prince's clique made it seem as if they entirely placed themselves in the hands of Russia and managed to have sent to Bulgarian ministers who, in such a fashion, became the unwilling accomplices of the court camarilla. Among other things, in the heat of battle, the generals were forced to set aside excessive care in their choosing of methods, particularly since on the sympathy of the country in the current dictatorship they could not particularly rely. Never would the Turnival Constitution have led us to the present, and particularly for Russia, unfortunate crisis. And most importantly, under it, we would never have been able to so powerfully compromise our influence and prestige. End quote. Now, I think that's a pretty good summary of everything that went wrong. So kudos to Ionin. He, he, he hit the nail on the head here. So taking a step back, there's no denying that at this moment, Russia has received a real punch on the nose on the international stage. And well, it seemed pretty deserved. Even Ionin seems to acknowledge that. Now, Black points out that the irony of this new Bulgarian National Assembly, uh, which was formed which, you know, was kind of the first ever joint liberal conservative government, that the whole thing was technically illegal because it had been elected under the rules of the kind of personal regime of the prince, which the assembly itself had just declared to be illegal. So it's, it's a bit funny. The, the assembly basically declared that the rules which created it were improper and illegal. But to be frank, nobody cared. They were all just pretty much glad to be done with this whole business and to get the constitution back. However, the liberal half of this government was, as I mentioned, derived from the party's very conservative and moderate wings. So Karavelov, for example, had spent the last year or so serving as the mayor of Plovdiv and firmly opposed this coalition. So don't be mistaken that at this point everything is hand-holding in Kumbaya. Bulgarian politics is still filled with resentments and grudges. And even though this is a joint liberal conservative government, it only includes one wing of the liberal government, or the liberal party rather. So, with all that messy business taken care of, this no new joint government got down to work. Within about a month, they approved further payments to Russia to pay for its occupation following the war, as well as payments to complete the railroad from Constantinople to basically a village near Sofia. Importantly, they successfully obtained the right to have this railroad built by companies offering the best terms instead of having the contract dictated by the great powers. Just as importantly, this finally settled where the line would travel. Basically, it would go from Sofia to Vienna through Nice, instead of going through Kustendil and Skopje. Now, the liberals had originally wanted that more southerly route because they saw it as a way to incre increase Bulgarian influence in Macedonia, but everyone was now okay with the Nice route and happy to finish the years of debates about the railroad. Now, as a, a minor aside, I think there are now finally plans to connect Sofia and Skopje by railroad, but uh, to this day, that, that line does not exist. You can go to Kustendil, but you cannot go from Sofia to Skopje by rail, so this would have been a very different world, but the, the route through Nish was a lot more direct. It made more sense. Now, they also decided to issue pardons for those involved in the prince's coup and to finally dissolve the state council which he had used to govern. All these compromises meant that this was Bulgaria's first real unified government, bringing together the prince and both major parties, though again, not all wings of the Liberal Party. The only player that was firmly on the outs, besides that wing of the Liberals, was Russia, and no surprise they were not happy about it. 
Again, ironically, they placed all the blame for all this on Battenberg. Despite this, though, one of the major new goals of this new administration was patching up relations with Russia, which is why they easily approved the debt payments to St. Petersburg. However, the army was another major obstacle. It was the only place where Russia still had quite a bit of influence, and so the prince worked to ensure that his authority wouldn't be undermined by the army. But of course, doing that only further antagonized the Russians. There was genuine concern at this point that if a European war broke out and Russia got involved, that it would use its military and the Bulgarian military to basically annex Bulgaria and force it to fight in the conflict on behalf of the Russian side. The new Bulgarian foreign minister traveled to discuss this with the Tsar in October and found that basically he was still deeply resentful of Battenberg, but generally favorable towards this liberal conservative government. Again, it seems the fact that the Russians reflexively blamed everything bad on the prince meant that they were much more open to the political parties than maybe they even should have been. Ultimately, the Russians made concessions and withdrew Yonin and the new minister of war who had both clashed with Battenberg at this point. And so basically with that, it seemed to be that uh, relations were finally improving. Now, as winter slowly descended on Bulgaria in late 1883, a few other things were happening. The Timok Rebellion in Macedonia, which I mentioned before, was finally and completely put down by the Ottomans. Many of its leaders fled to Bulgaria to escape the resulting crackdown. The National Assembly, for its part, turned its attention towards the Constitution. Remember, the Conservatives had agreed to enter the coalition wanting some amendments, but it was agreed that those would be discussed later, and well, later had come. Now, this issue was, again, driving a deep wedge between the center and the right-leaning factions of the liberals, headed by Tsankov, and the you know, left-wing headed by people like Karavelov and Slavikov. That left-wing was furious with Tsankov for even entertaining the possibility of these conservative amendments to the Constitution. However, despite that opposition, a series of amendments were approved late in the year, creating an upper chamber for the legislature, amending voting rules so only those with proper property and literacy could participate, having the number of representatives in the National Assembly, and giving the prince that title he had always wanted, and a few other things. But a compromise was that these changes would not go into effect for three years. Still, having you know, feeling they had achieved everything they wanted, the conservatives resigned from government on the last day of the year, leaving Tsankov to form a new cabinet on his own. However, the passing of these constitutional amendments effectively formalized or finalized the split in the Liberal Party, as many denounced them as a kind of second coup and declared that Tsankov was a traitor. So, next time, we'll see what emerges from all this smoke and fire and just all the chaos of Bulgarian politics at this moment. This brief unitary government achieved quite a lot, passed a lot of laws, you know, set aside quite a few issues that had been bubbling in the background of Bulgarian politics for years, but it had also effectively split the Liberal Party in half, and at this point the prince is still facing very stiff and determined Russian opposition. So, you know, things are a bit simpler, but they're still pretty messy. New elections will be held in the spring, and it remains to be seen what this new political moment will bring. Who will win the elections? Will things get patched up with Russia? 
how is Battenberg going to respond to any of these? I mean, it seems he basically gave up his dreams of uh, amending the Constitution substantially in the ways he wanted. But, well, we'll see. He's still a young man. Is he going to hold on to those dreams or is he really kind of permanently cowed? So you won't want to miss that one. And that's it for today. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven. Check out the Bulgarian language version of the podcast, which hopefully I'll get back to at some point at bghistorypodcast.com, along with a bunch of other great stuff.